Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com. My name's Deontay. I'm 34 years old. I graduated in 2004 from Rainier Beach High School in Seattle. I am gay. I'm a, a happy, pause gay male. <laughs> gay black male. This interview was recorded in December of 2019 in Seattle. Be advised, this interview contains a detailed first-person description of childhood sexual abuse. Right down the street, in the hood. See, like over here where I'm from, we call it the South End. People say South End, but we say South End. So S-O-U-F, you know, N, so. This, and this is real, this is cardinal rule, okay? Over on Rainier Avenue by the Burger King, that is the cutoff. When you pass that Burger King, you are officially in the central district of Seattle. Inter oh, sorry. <laughs> Have to say it for the new community members. That's the international district area. Coming from the international district and passing that Burger King, you are officially in the south end of Seattle. The south end of the south end is Henderson. Rainier and Henderson, right by Rainier Beach High School. My twin brother would be so proud of me by saying, yeah, you let them know exactly what our area looks like. I am the third of six. My father actually has his own business. He's had his own tow truck business since 1990. And it's always been a very strong workaholic. And my mother was always a care, she was a caretaker within the community um, and has been doing that since, I would say about 1993, just about. They were never married, um, but they had three of us, me and my twin brother and my little brother. But they're really good friends. Like there are two people that just like, will love each other for life, but they just can't be together. It's just one of those things. So they always spent a lot of time out doing their fair share of community work within their job. So we stayed, we resided with my grandparents. My grandmother was a, foster, was a foster home developer for the YMCA for almost 30 years. And my grandfather was one of the first engineers to get employed at Boeing and worked there for 40, 43 years. So I have a family that has been very enthralled within working very hard and minding their business. So when I came around, it was just a little different. <laughs> my mother had a very good friend that was queer and there was a lot of trauma behind that friendship so when I came out to her she wanted to make sure that I wasn't in a space where I ended up like her friend Jessie her and Jessie have been friends for since my mom moved here and they were very close. And Jesse got diagnosed with HIV slash AIDS at a very late stage. And Jesse ended up passing away with complications to AIDS and was just left in his house and was dead for a couple of days. Just to think about the trauma of my mother having to go get that door open. So to think about me coming out to her at the age of 17 and her fear when she looks at me, she sees him, you know? My father, on the other hand, my father's great. He was just always the one like, out of sight, out of mind. Don't tell me about your gay shit. 
<laughs> because at the end of the day, he's grew up, his father worked for Boeing. You know, these are working menly definition of menly men. Like my grandfather and my father are great, are great men, but they never showed emotion. I knew that I was loved, but there was no emotion in that space. To be a man, you just don't feel nothing. You don't say anything. That's for women. That's for, that's for your mom. That's for your grandma. I'm going to teach you how to be a man, and that's it. They weren't very talkative, but they made sure I watched documentaries on my culture. They made sure that watching Roots was something that we will do. Stop doing your homework and watch Roots. <laughs> you know, you're going to figure out how important your culture is, you know. And I, and I always have been grateful for that. I think the first time I ever heard about sex was probably when I was molested. And I was eight years old. And a babysitter asked me to perform oral sex on them. And of course, like, in my head, I didn't internalize what that looked like. Did I say no? No, I didn't. Did I do it? Yeah. Did I tell after I did it? Yes. Because I knew that it wasn't right. And I was one of those kids that was like, I'm telling. I told everything. Like, my, my family would tell you that I'm just like this big-ass tattletale. So, at the end of the day, um, I remember telling people. I wasn't expecting for them to be like, to rescue me because at the end of the day, I don't even have a language for what happened. I just know that something happened. I didn't expect anybody to do anything. It's just like, oh, this happened. I didn't know that it was actually, there was a word for it, molestation, but I knew that I was young and I knew that whatever I was just doing made me feel very uncomfortable. I remember telling an adult and the adult just kind of just saying like, don't really say anything. So sex is bad, and I was just touched by a, a, a man, and that is like my babysitter. So I guess like even me talking about it is bad. So I guess I won't say anything at all. A lot of people from our generation before us, and the ones before that, she was like, we sweep under the rug. We don't have conversations about being touched because it happened to them. You're introduced to something so young, and you don't know exactly what that looks like, but you know one thing, your, your great-great-grandparents can probably say, don't say anything. You know, we don't have time for that. You have to go to school. I have to keep up with appearances. Talking to a lot of my friends as I'm getting into high school about what their experiences has been like, and they're like, oh, I've been molested, and I'm like, oh, what the hell is that? Oh, that's what that is. And I caught my friend in high school, ninth grade. He was cheating on my, one of my friends, my homegirl. And I remember saying like, ooh, motherfucker, I'm gonna tell on you, you know? <laughs> and I remember running and him running up to me and putting his hands on my mouth. And I, at that point, I remembered everything. What had happened, and I know that it had happened to someone else. And I remember reaching out to that person and saying, hey, did this happen? Yeah, you know, this happened and I told this person and that person and like we're literally sitting there talking about our traumas and it's like, you know what? That was fucked up. Reconfronting the same people that I told and, and it was still the same reaction, you know, which is 
for me, it was okay. Because in our communities, it's, it's like an out of sight, out of mind. We sleep under the rug. Even bringing it up to them recently, it made them feel very uncomfortable. Because now I'm so adult now, I can internalize what they're saying and say, well, did that ever happen to you? And what does that look like for you? And they're still in that same complex of not wanting to talk about that. I talk openly about it now because I have freedom from it. I know the people that I told still don't have freedom from theirs. That's the real sad part about that. I was probably um, in like the fifth or sixth grade mm -hmm. and my teacher probably was giving us sex education and I was just like, okay, well, that is a uterus. Okay, that's a lot of holes. I don't think that that's for me. And I, I was young, but I just knew that I just was not attracted to women. I just knew it. But and then like fifth and sixth grade, I was going through the spaces of puberty and learning a little bit about my body. For me, I just knew that I just did not like women. There's an R&B group called Silk. I can't remember the guy's name in it, but he was like, I just knew that I really just wanted to be with him. He was just like so cute. And I remember telling my sister that, and she was like, oh my God, you're so gross, you okay? I remember her saying that. And I was like, no, I'm not, girl. I was pointing at the girl in the video, not the guy. Tay Diggs was fine. We always celebrated the light-skinned black man, you know? And I'm a, a fairly dark-skinned guy. And he was just chocolate and beautiful and beautiful teeth and smile. And I never really seen that type of fine. So Tay Diggs, most definitely. And if you ever wanted to flashback to Stella got a groove back, you would know why he is just so fine. He was fine back then. Yeah. And Blair Underwood. Cause like, he's like, what, 60? And he still looks like he's like 27. I know. He yeah. looks younger than half my boyfriends. Oh, and also Tech from the real world, Hawaii. Completely homophobic, but really liked Tech from the real world. <laughs> Back in the day in Seattle, they used to, on channel 29, which everybody knows was the public access channel. Like after two o'clock, you can actually watch porn. And the show was called Exit Lights. Of oh, the first time I ever masturbated was watching Exit Lights. Somebody taught me how to jack off the day before and I was like, oh, I'll watch this and do it. I just remember doing that and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is what the world, this is what I've been missing in this world. Exit Lights. Something, something. And I'd just be dancing, getting my, getting my Vaseline, like, yes, this is my show. <laughs> Not going to sleep till three. <laughs> so horrible. So that's how I learned what, what that looked like. And it would show different things, such as men and men, men and women. Uh, that was the first time I ever seen a transsexual topping a, a, a man. Never seen that before. I didn't really start acting on what that looked like until I probably got into middle school. And that was just primarily just first and second base, such as like, oh, show me yours, show you mine, with men. Mm -hmm. Women came a little later, but I don't think that you would really 
want that in the documentary. It's pretty boring. <laughs> I learned about queer sex because the first guy that I slept with, it was so weird because he taught me how to, to, to masturbate. And I was so nervous with him because I actually had a crush on him. And that's how that started. I was probably about 13, 12, 13. He was a friend um, that I've known, for, I knew him for a long time. It was just very weird for him to kind of come on to me like that. I was so scared. I was super duper, Super nervous. I know, believe it or not, yeah. I used to be a little, sh I was shy when it came to that type of thing. I had to make my parents have to talk. Shout out to my aunties, because my aunties would always try to like talk to my mom, who really didn't want to talk about my sexuality. So they would just say, look, just say you're gay so we can just kind of move on with our lives. And it's like, look, you don't know my life. <laughs> We're not gonna have that conversation. I remember that very vividly. I can even tell you the day it was, oh my gosh. It was 2000, 2000 in November. My auntie, I ain't gonna say her name, but she came to my mother's house and it was the day of the election. It was the day Bush won. And as that was going on, she was like, oh, well anyway, just tell everybody you're gay so we can move on with our lives. And it's just like, shut up. <laughs> not exactly ready. My mom would ask, but it's like, this is my mom. I'm not telling her like I'm sleeping with the person that spent the night the other night. You know, I'm not telling her that. Then, I, then they can't stay the night. You know, my dad, I think my dad tried to once, but it was just, it just didn't work out. We both weren't ready. <laughs> um, I was 15. My grandmother was different. That was because she's very, very religious. And I made her have the talk because I was like 17 and this was after my first time. And I remember going to the clinic and they were like get tested you know and I knew to get tested like at 17 and I remember my grandma saying why are we here again I was like oh because I'm getting tested for STDs or STIs she's like oh okay well wait a minute are you having sex and I'm like uh yeah and she's like well with women or a man she asked and I said oh both and I just remember her sitting there like, okay, like if she could pull out holy oil, it would have been there. But she went to church with some of them people, so it just didn't work out that way. <laughs> My first crush? Yeah. Oh, shit. My first crush was on this boy in middle school. His name was Jason. He was like in the, the eighth grade. I was in sixth grade. And the thing about Jason, like, he was just fine. And I remember him coming, he would come into our classroom with the newspaper. And like, when he would come in the whole, like we were some bad motherfuckers. So like, we would instantly get silent when he walked in the room. And I was a bad kid, but once he came in, I'd be super duper quiet. And I remember like trying to hook him up with like my girlfriends. And like, I would like call him on three way with my friends and stuff and just be all up in his business. I was so horrible. And I know, like, if he ever watched this, he'd be like, what? Yeah, I probably knew that. But he was just always, he was just like, he was just so cute. But he was real. he was always very nice to me. Never, like, rude or, like, back then, it wasn't so LGBTQ friendly. We didn't even have those letters. You were just a faggot in, in my community. That's what they would say. And I was never, I wasn't that in his space. He was very, very, very nice to me. Always very nice. 
my first time was with my my boyfriend. His name was Tyrone. So we, I think we met like off of a like a party line. I want to say like a phone line. Can you just describe for for people? Because I don't think a lot of people understand what the party line is. So back in the day, there used to be this chat line called the back door. I think it was. We would call the the party line. And you would talk to people, describe yourself, what you look like, what you're looking for. You can break off and send a message, or you can break off for a one-on-one -on -one connection. And see, I was scary because people actually knew my voice, so I would actually keep mine blank, or I would just like play some music. During that time, it would be very few and far between where I would actually meet somebody because I was so scary. We dated a while, a long. We met, like it was like months and months and months of us talking. Probably, I would say almost like six or seven months before we actually started, like, we actually met each other. But my homegirl, I ain't gonna say her name, but she was dating a guy named Omar. And both of our, both of our guys worked at Safeway. And I remember going to Safeway and she was like, oh, that's Omar. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, no, bitch, that's Tyrone. So, kind of find out he was dating both me and my girlfriend. Had he told you that he worked at Safeway? Yeah. You were suspecting that that was him? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I, oh my God, I remember just being super dramatic about it. I was like, oh my God, why would you? Like, we didn't even meet yet. I was just so, like, into it. Lo and behold, like, a couple of days later, we ended up meeting up. Actually, we met up the street from each other because we lived like, we didn't live far from each other. I remember just meeting him and it was very dark and he was dark, but he had just beautiful teeth and this awesome smile and he was tall. We spent a lot of time just standing right there just like talking for like a couple of hours, just like how we were on the phone. I wish I could go back to those times and just, we didn't even know what the hell each other looked like at that time. There was no camera phones, but we knew that we enjoyed talking to each other and getting to know each other and... We ended up getting very serious, and he was, he was very, very nice. But when it came down for us to get into that space, we were very shy. We both grew up in spaces where religion actually had an impact in our spaces. And he was just now moving here. And he was a gentle guy. I think it was just the simple fact of just making that extra step that I didn't know exactly what a step was. Like, oh my gosh, this is really in here, you know? Like, I can't run from this, and I did. I ran, like, Speedy Gonzalez, so. Ran from? Oh, the dick. Okay. The penis. Can you edit that out? Don't put the dick, put the penis, please. <laughs> um, but he was a really good boyfriend. Like, I've heard very tragic stories about first boyfriends, but he was a really, really, really good boyfriend. I was the shitty one because I didn't really know how to cut my friends off and stop hanging out with my friends and, like, spend time with him. So he called me on Valentine's Day like, guess what? It's over. I was like, okay. How long had you been dating? Not long. Probably almost a year. So the first time was with Tyrone? Yeah. Yeah. We had to be very, very quiet because we were at a family member's house. I remember, like, me being very, very scared to put it in. And I just remember just, like, screaming to the top of my lungs. We did use lube, but, uh, I mean, we knew about it. I mean, and it was used, but that wasn't enough, honey. That was not enough. I mean, hell, 
I didn't know whether to put down some icy hot or what the hell to put down there. It was, it was very, very traumatic. I was supposed to be feeling like I was in a damn Mandy Moore video, but I felt like I was on the fuck a Marilyn Manson, the beautiful people video. Like I was fucked up. That shit was, it hurt. It was a great experience as in like, yes, like I'm actually becoming an, I'm not a girl, not yet a woman type of thing, but I wish I would have been way more prepared. We did do other stuff, but at that point it was almost over at that time. I started kind of doing my own thing. Not cheating, but just kind of just like hanging out with friends, doing ecstasy, you know, the fun stuff. <laughs> but I love that guy. Me and that guy will always be good, good friends. It's always just like this in sync thing that we, that we'll always do, as in like being there for each other. And I always will love him for that, so. We won't be in that space of being in a relationship anymore. I think we're older, we're, we're past that, but we will always, that we'll always hold a special place for each other. He was the first man that I can honestly say that I said that I loved and I meant. But I really didn't put in the work, you know? And I, I just, um, I was an idiot back then. Besides Tyrone, I tended to date DL guys, guys that weren't fully out. And um, that was just my preference. I grew up as a twin, so I shared toys, I shared clothes, I shared all that. And dating someone DL was just something that was more personal. Even whatever time, time frame it was, however long it was, it just, it still felt good to me to kind of have something that belonged to me, even in that moment. It wasn't healthy, but I, I thought it was, and because dating someone that didn't belong to everybody in the gay clubs was okay with me. And I did that for a very long time. So I moved to Florida when I was 18, and that was great experience, um, learning different things and about myself and my preference and what I like and being spontaneous sexually and then I was in love with this guy named Tony we met in the club and I was dancing and I have rhythm but I don't have like I don't have I didn't have Florida rhythm at the time and I remember him telling me oh you got two left feet and I was like fuck you I I can dance and I was just drunk just being an idiot and I was dating someone at the time and within like two weeks, I totally like told that dude like, hey, peace out. I'm going to be with Tony. And me and Tony were together. We weren't together that long, probably about eight months, seven months off from like going back and forth. I tend to like dating back and forth guys, guys that are just not really sure um, about where we're going, which is so weird because like I'm just like this headstrong guy now that kind of like knows what I want community-wise, but relationships has always been just like really, really complicated. And the process with Tony was very different. There was some infidelity there on his part, not on mine. And I had great sex after that. But at the same time, I ended up packing up my bags and moving to Washington, D.C. D.C. was different though. 
when I lived in DC, I never cared about, like I used to long for a relationship and I wanted to be like the princess bride, you know, I have my man, I know I want him, I know who I want to be with. But when I was in DC, it was like, hey, I'm young, I'm dumb, and I'm full of, you know, whatever that is. Um, and I really had a great time. I, I dated good guys. There were good guys there, but I just was not in the space of just like relationship. Nah, not in DC. There was a lot of empowerment that came from living there. I'd never been surrounded around black gay men that weren't the stereotype, that weren't hairdressers or clothing designers. I was meeting black doctors and lawyers and firemen and activists. I never been around that before. And culturally for me, that was like really, really big. I didn't know what my culture looked like until I moved to DC. Florida was there, yeah, it was it was there. It was and and everyone there were beautiful people. But culturally for me, like knowing that I can go beyond, above and beyond, watching some of these people in these spaces, it just made me feel like I can be that. And I must have met the love of my life like seven or eight nights in a row. <laughs> I never felt so empowered about myself in general. I wasn't holding myself in this space where I, I, um, where I restricted myself. Like I'm always open, but there's always a piece of me that I restricted. Not in DC, honey. I was now accepting the applications everywhere and I was very, very happy about checking those resumes. So I lived like right down the street from Howard University and I had a ball, honey. I had a ball, maybe even two, but it was, I had a, I had a great experience there. It was DC in, in Pensacola from like 2004 to 2011. And then 12, I moved back here to Seattle which was different because I wasn't really going out to the gay clubs like how I used to. One of my, my friends were kind of spread out and I was working as a server at Gameworks. Gameworks is an um, a arcade space downtown across the street from uh, Cheesecake Factory. And I met this guy. We actually went to high school together. The brother never really was in class. So it's not like I really hung out in his crowd, but um, we were friends within friends. And he was friends with some people that I knew outside of like working at Gameworks and seeing him and it kind of just took off from there. And this guy, this guy was different because this was the first time I fell in love, in love. Because every day when I was with him, it felt like Christmas morning. Totally opposite of me. Very quiet, very rough around the edges. But at the same time, he was very soft and very fun and very soft with me. Like, that was the most openly sexual I've ever been in my life. Like, I felt safe. And
I'm not a person to really let people hold me. But him holding me was just like, it was better than sex. And the sex was off the chain. Like, I wasn't a person to go around. Usually I'd be like, one, one and done. But it was like, okay, whenever you want it, let's go. And it was great. One day at my job, one of my coworkers told me that there was a girl at my table. And she asked me, do I know him? And I said, no. And she said, well, I'm his wife. I was like, okay. Like, how how am I going to play this off? Um, And I played it off. So when she came to your work, that was the first you'd ever heard? I did hear of her. But out of sight, out of mind for me. I mean, I knew that there was someone around. I just didn't know it was her and how how in-depth it was. And it really wasn't that in-depth. Like, she married him when they were in prison or some... Stupid shit like that. It's not stupid. No shade to anybody that's locked up. But it didn't even matter the fact of him being married. It didn't. It just mattered to me that you're supposed to be my Christmas morning and I have no nothing to show for it. We can have sex. Sex is beautiful. But there's it comes with risk. That was the risk that I was taking with this guy. And he ended up packing up and leaving town after I found out that he gave me gonorrhea. And also that he was married. And then three months later, I went to go visit my mother in Florida and then I found out that he was positive. Well, because I was positive. And that just fucking just... It fucking took everything out of me. And I started trying to find myself again. I can still remember that feeling of just like finding out that they left town. And as I got older, I started to realize how much I needed to start investing into relationships and building for someone. Because you can always be there for someone. Anybody can have those type of relationships. When you actually show up for someone internally, like in... Um, show up for the things that mean the most to them. That can create a great impact. And unfortunately for him, that's not what he wanted. I think for me, I tried to force that relationship, you know, and that was like bad. I really just tried to create this person that really wasn't that person. Like, it was like, oh my God, look, he's so great, isn't he? And like, my friends were like, bitch, he ain't shit. This motherfucker's about to leave you and do some stupid shit. My mom told me this story once. Once time, there was a guy who seen a snake. The snake was cut up on the ground. So the guy picked up the snake and nursed the snake back to health and then showed his family and friends like, hey, look, this is my snake. The snake's cute, isn't he? Look, I nursed him back to health. And then one day out of nowhere, the snake bit him. And the guy asked, well, snake, why'd you bite me? And the snake said, well, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. The only person I could really be mad at is myself. (laughs) Even now, like I've seen them recently, maybe about a year ago. And it was one of those things. I could have been mad. I could have went off, but it was more so like, hey, how are you? Are you good? Are you doing good? Can you go play in traffic? You know, all the polite stuff you all say on, you say on a Christmas card, so. 
But that's the end of that one. When I was diagnosed with HIV, I moved to Philadelphia and I was just building myself back up. Like mentally, in a physical space too. Like I didn't know nothing about no apps. I didn't want to, I didn't know how to date. I didn't want to meet anyone off of any apps. I didn't know how to be my own self, let alone let people know like, oh yes, I'm also positive. Who says that? No one just openly lives out there in that lifestyle like that. But in Philadelphia, people were actually being very open about their status, which was very different for me. And I remember meeting this guy. He was very sweet and nice. And we dated for about six or seven months. And he was going through a situation where he was ending a relationship. And he ended up moving in with me. And... I remember writing something on Facebook about being very happy where I was at. I was in a space where I was working on a relationship and I found myself and I have my own place and everything in my life for the first time ever was actually working out. But he was very pissed off that I talked about our relationship. Unbeknownst to me, he was still sleeping with his ex-boyfriend and he basically threatened to leave my house and the next morning, I told him that he had to get his stuff and leave, and he grabbed me and, like, jacked me up in the corner, and he said, well, who wants to be with someone if you're not going to have sex with them? No one's ever going to be with you because of where you're at. And he was also positive, too. But for me, that put me in a space of just, like, oh, I, I'm nothing. I'm back to the nothing person that I was. And because I don't know how to be sexual anymore, because of my status, no one's ever going to want me. He's absolutely right. He spit in my face. Like, that's the most degrading, one of the most degrading situations I've ever had in my life. And it, it put me in a space of like, oh, I'll show him, you know. And that's when my life, took a different turn as opposed to saying forget him I'll find someone else I started leaning back on the old substances that I've used previously in my life um, and I started back using using methamphetamine and I decided not to just smoke it I decided to shoot it which is called slamming and it affected me in so many different ways because I lost my job <laughs> I started hanging around people to be sexual, but I couldn't be sexual because there's a piece of isolation that I was really, really dealing with. So it went into a, like a three-year trance of me just using and trying to find myself. At that point, it was beyond him. I was completely over him. But it was when people see me, I'm just this very headstrong individual and I know myself and all that. But I'm very fragile too. I don't share that piece with everyone. And when I am intimate with someone, and I'm not talking about the intimacy where we're fucking, I'm talking about the intimacy where I'm actually really talking to you about family traumas, the things that scare me, the things I need to be protected from. And someone makes you feel like you're incomplete from that. Um, that, was, that was crushing. I'm looking for longevity. Because I need it. I focused a lot on my sexuality for years. In the space of my addiction, I focused on it 
for a long time. And I am in a space now where I can do everything by myself. But I need to be in a space where open to love, where they see the colors of my insides. I'm doing a lot of things where I'm working in community 24-7, whether it's my actual job or um, community events or in friends and family. And I need to actually find my space of quiet place. I would love to be in a space where I'm just like having my sexual revolution. But at the same time, I need to also protect my peace. And that's being aware, like, you know, I cannot keep giving everyone this energy because when, once I get into that space of being wrapped up with with someone, um, with just one person, that can take a toll if it's draining or if it doesn't work out. And I really just am in a space of just wanting to be with someone who can help heal whatever broken pieces I have because I can't act like I don't have those too. Mm-hmm. Are you usually monogamous when you're in a relationship? Very much so. And you and your partner have that explicit agreement? We do have that explicit agreement, but motherfuckers lie. <laughs> and there's nothing anyone can put past me. We're only six degrees of separation from one another. And in Seattle, where I live, it's probably about two or three. So nine times out of ten, it'll probably get back to me. I prefer to be monogamous, and I cannot deal with sharing. I've done my fair share of group things or quote-unquote poly relationships. And what I mean by that, that is not like me and this person and, and this person are all together. It's just more so, of okay, you'll be with her during those days and you could be with me for a couple. I need all the days. I need 24-7. If I'm not the one, then you go find number two. The most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me during sex was this one time, and I ain't gonna say his name, but we were up for like five days straight. It was off and on five days straight, but we were using it. Um, I was doing oral sex and, I, and he fell asleep. And I was just so mad. Like, that's embarrassing. If somebody falls asleep on you during that space, that means that you, you done lost your mojo. And I felt like Austin Powers in that space. I felt like I lost my mojo. Yeah, but that was probably the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened during sex. What do I think is my best move? Shit, I don't know. I don't, I, okay. I mean, hell, it could be all of them if it's with the right person. There's certain things that I just won't do. There has been one person I can say that has made, made, me, made sure I did all of them. So think about that. I can be aggressive and um, I don't like anyone very quiet. But if you're very aggressive with me, I can get submissive. I don't know if that's too much for y'all. And I know that I do community stuff, but at the same time, I'm still an adult. The most challenging part of my journey is actually where I'm at now. I am actually in a space where I've never felt so sure of my path and where I'm at. And I'm very open about my previous methamphetamine addiction and my incarceration history and my HIV status and being undetectable 
And it's very hard to date men now because I'm open and owning all of those things. And a lot of men, they can't take that. Some of them may or may not be positive too, or they're still going through the spaces of, they don't want their family to know about, could they have possibly went through the spaces of addiction? I spent the majority of this year dating this guy. No sex at all. Um, actually really trying to get to know one another. And as of like Thursday, they told me like, you're just in a space right now where you're just so honest and I don't know how to be that. How crushing do you think that that is of like overcoming all those obstacles and just thinking if I did not overcome those obstacles, I could probably be with somebody like that. What he just told me was that you're too truthful for me. So I can't live that way. I'd rather sit in my addiction. I'd rather not be open about dating people who are pods. And at the same time, like, it's, it's so hard. Since I was 16 years old, this has probably been the longest and the, the, the smallest list of partners that I've had because at the same time, like, there's a lot going in this now. I'm about to be 35 next year. I don't want to just have just a sexual partner. I need a, another half. So the challenging part was this year in coming into my own and knowing what I can live without. And I have officially cut that motherfucker off. Because at the end of the day, if you can't add on to me and you're multiplying me with your problems and you're causing me division, then I have to subtract your ass. And that's really where I'm at when it comes to people. And other than that, it's a challenge, but trust me, every night I can do something by myself for a minute and a half and be okay. That's where I'm at with that. So that was the most challenging. This has been like one of the hardest situations like ever to start finding what works for me. And that means in my damn bedroom and waiting a lot more longer. like. I've never had sex with this motherfucker at all. This is probably the third time in my life where I've been in love with someone and I've never touched him. What do you think's gonna happen when we fuck? Girl, I'm done for. If you don't love me to change, your, change the narrative of where you're at, then you need to change your path because I can't deal with certain, the, certain things that, I'm growing, that I've grown out of. He wasn't ready to be his damn self. I think what I did was I fell in love with they, who they could be but not with who they are, because who they are is just somebody that's just been very indecisive. And I can't get jiggy with that shit. When I actually really started to accept that space was actually last year, October 19th, uh, when I did the AMP, which is the AIDS Memorial Project. They came to interview me in my house and I just did my last slam. And they interviewed me for two and a half hours and I talked about things that I never discussed with my family, my friends, my church, everything. There were so many traumas that I was dealing with in my space that I didn't even know I was even dealing with. But what the Memorial Project did for me was it freed me of owning that. I was like, damn, that's in a time capsule. People are going to remember that shit. So guess what? I'm going to have to show and prove when the next day I went to, back to church. I joined my church and got over my church trauma. I started holding my friends accountable. 
in myself by saying, like, look, my name is Deontay and I'm an addict and I'm not going to act like I'm not an addict anymore. I am dealing with something and I need your support. Who's going to show up for me? I took my job more seriously and I started reaching out to different spaces in the community. It was a community that got me sober. And it took me about a month. But by the time I started January, everything just started going off with a bang. With having it figured out, I had to get out of my own way to find my own path. And that was the old me, the molested Deontay, the, the, the intro to sex early Deontay, the loud and boastful Deontay who everybody always thinks is okay and doesn't go through spaces of being insecure or hurt. All of those things being the positive Deontay, the undetectable one. I had to get out of his damn way too. Because even though I'm in a space of being positive, a lot of people in this community, my black and brown brothers and sisters, don't really have a narrative of what that looks like. So they still look at me like I'm Pedro from the real world. Meth is not a 12-step program. It's so different from heroin. It's so different from crack. It's such a bigger piece when it comes to our LGBTQ community. Um, it's a lot of isolation to come out of that space. And it, it's, it's hard. And we're not, we're not really having that conversation about meth. Methamphetamine is usually used as a sexual drug. Some people can cut it the fuck off, but it's really fucking hard. And until we actually start having a real conversation of what that looks like, because now methamphetamine use has went up from 22 to 44% within the African-American community, what people living with HIV. That is staggering. So if you think of that community that's dealing with it, think about the community that is not identifying as, uh, as gay, that is using, that are African-Americans. And a lot of them are getting it through slamming, which is through the needle. Um, a lot of them, you look at places like the North End that have needle exchange programs, which are primarily not diverse. It's not a diverse community there. But then you look at places like Tukwila, where a lot of people are PMP and a lot of people are out there. And PMP means party and play, ladies and gentlemen, um, out there in the area, but there are no resources for people that are using out there in the area. We really need to figure out what that looks like for us. If we make up 6% of the population here, we as an African-Americans, and 25% of the newer diagnoses are African-Americans, that's a big problem. That means that we're gonna be on the verge of a pandemic here. And I think that it's really important to start spreading the information about sexual health. Because you can still have a good sex life off, off of being positive, but we just need to start spreading the message out there to live positively as in getting tested, talking about PrEP and PEP, and um, especially in the uh, more marginalized communities. Being intimate now is a lot different because now I realize now how beautiful I am and how my body is my responsibility but I have the rest of this, bo this body for the rest of my life I put my body through addiction I put my body through a health disparity 
I owe it to this body for the person, the next person that touches it or to be intimate with it, to treat it like gold. Because there was a point of time where I treated it like copper. So it's very important to me. And the person or people that, that are, were dating in, this spa in that space of just like, hey, I'm treating my body with more respect. For someone to find that sexy, you know what I mean? I would love to find somebody that found that me respecting my body over all that this body has been through. Because I got a couple of miles on it, you know. <laughs> but finding respect in this body that has been through some things. And because um, beyond this body, there's a, there's a heart there that has been damaged and ripped to fucking treads. I'm glad that I've been spending this year of healing that heart along with the body. You might have to interview me in a couple of years and it might be, it might be different. <laughs> it will be different. I'm, I'm just very happy to be in the space of just kind of just like, of knowing that. Because there was a point in time where I didn't know that about any of those things with my heart or my body and didn't care. <laughs> It's different when your body's running on empty, but I've never felt so full in my life. As of now, heartbreaks aside. Fruitful interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit FruitBowlPodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Help support Fruit Bowl's efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and occasional bonus content. Larger donations and sponsorships are tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, contact information, and news about future production. Visit fruitbullpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Syra B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>